Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight, I'm joined by Rowan Kaiser. Hello. And freelance writer, Ruth Cassidy. Hello. So today we're going to be discussing the challenges and different approaches to depicting ethical dilemmas or modeling the dynamics of worlds governed by amorality or immorality. Uh, Rowan, you were moved to this topic after reading Ruth's excellent story, Ethically Designing Unethical Worlds for Game Developer. This is an angle on strategy games that I think we touch on every few years. It certainly comes up a lot in our conversations, but I'm curious where you see some of the most salient issues in in the strategy games landscape uh, around, around this topic right now. Um, I think that like, this is a thing that the grand strategy games and the big four X's are really starting to, to deliberately get into Uh, civilization sort of started with it, with its um, approach to nuclear war and global warming. And then it went away from it. And now it's kind of trying to push back on it. But uh, the paradox games are really, really like trying to walk that uh, tightrope of um, depicting historical events versus endorsing historical events in games like crusader kings where you can you know commit eugenics on your children or hearts of iron which world war ii is uh pretty difficult ethically to to break through so that's that's sort of my initial take on it uh there's also like all kinds of different other uh different other forms and ruth's ruth's article was uh City Builders, which I think uh, it centers on uh, Frostpunk as one of them, which is uh, like just built on that entire idea of uh, how do you how do you ethically build a city in a world where, you know, you have to be a complete asshole to survive. Um, so, yeah, there's there's lots of different vectors. But my my initial one personally was the, the grand strategy uh, where. You know, this is this is a thing that we see with Paradox games and Paradox fans of uh, kind of like <laughs> one could say isolated. Paradox fans have made the issue more pressing uh, yes. in in places. <laughs> yes, um, they, they try to isolate those ethical choices into uh, into uh, places that aren't ac- actually where the ethics are from, and it it, it all gets difficult. Um, Ruth, I'm I'm curious. You know, obviously, to an to an extent, like a freelance writer is always just like throwing out pitches, take, taking those shots. But like, this is a really good feature. It's a, it's it's a really good piece uh, with, with some great interviews. I am curious, uh, what moved you to pitch it? Like, what were you when you were sort of looking around, thinking about like what you wanted to write about? Uh, why did this sort of jump out as a a topic that is like worthy of some consideration right now? Uh, so it is. Partly a thing that always kind of interests me as a critic in that it is a thing that comes up sort of media criticism a lot of sort of is anything that is iffy, for lack of a better word, sort of meant to be diegetic or not. You know, is this thing excused by the law or the setting or is it actually, you know, a design choice? And that kind of, it comes up with basically kind of any kind of game, any kind of criticism. and. When you have kind of the themes that a lot of strategy games get into, it gets really kind of gritty because you get into sort of 
actually depicting those things, not necessarily in a narrative way, but kind of actually abstracting it into kind of numbers and choices in the very specific ways you're presenting it to players. But it actually came up as a sort of, oh, I actually want to pitch this now uh, because I was watching a talk by uh, Zalavir Nelson Jr. about um, how he designed Space Warlord, <laughs> Space Warlord Organ Trading Simulator. Got to get those words in the correct order. This is how I basically, I just sound out that title in my head uh, because yes. it, it still does not compute. Uh, and so I do have to remind myself the series of modifiers and nouns. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was watching his talk about how it was sort of uh, designing it was sort of existentially horrifying for the team to kind of question how they were making a lot of the design decisions that they were. And one of the things that he brought up was, um, I forget which game. You might have not actually mentioned the specific game, but it was an Elder Scrolls game, I believe. Maybe don't quote me exactly on that one. Um, but uh, one of the races, as just a fixed modifier, um, had a had a racial stat essentially that was uh, n- negatively perceived by a another race. Um, Mm-hmm. And he said there was there was no way within within the text of the game. All you had was just like negative five opinion modifier, and there was no way to read within the text of the game whether this was meant to be satirical or whether this was a bias from the designer. All you had was just this numerical modifier, and I found that really interesting. Kind of because he was posing it as sort of that every sort of piece of data in a in a game design is communicating something about the world that you're designing and you have to make these design decisions intentionally um but i found that really interesting that down to sort of the numbers and how you present these numbers how you visualize them how you give them to players to exploit and act on was very interesting to me to think about in terms of what is often left in the terms of quite narrative and thematic critiques, which is, yes, how I then got to, okay, let's talk about like abstraction, strategy games, simulators. How do we take these themes and these particular mechanics and tools? Right. And, and I think it's something that is particularly, like, I think there is a tendency in strategy games uh, to because everything tends to not everything, but like there's so many games that sort of live in a uh, sense of like on some level, this is a simulation. There's a model running that governs this world. And that can feel very much like that is not, that is not an author telling you a story in some ways it can feel very impersonal, right? Like, Oh, the world just like runs according to, these statistics in in that Elder Scrolls example or whatever game it, it was that he was referring to, it's like, yeah, racism is real in this world, and this is exactly how it affects you. It it, it just is sort of a negative stat on interactions between uh, like people of these groups. I think where it that can create a situation where it's very easy for a strategy game to leave these things unexamined. Um, yeah. Or leave or leave space for a player to fail to examine them. 
Yeah. And I think for me, that's maybe where it starts to get, um, I don't know, not, I don't want to say like, there, there's a tendency to, uh, I also am trying to push back on myself against, which is that like, I think there's a lot of strategy games that probably end up unintentionally or thoughtlessly uh, <laughs> depicting historical realities or trends and such. Um, and I don't think that those games end up like trying to endorse horrible things, but they do create a world where like one horrible things are a lot of, can be a lot of fun. And two, they end up maybe unintentionally making the argument of like, well, it works. Say yeah. what you will about space <laughs> racism and imperialism, but you can't argue with the results, folks. Glass those planets. Well, I mean, this is one of the issues with video games overall, and especially with uh, systemic games like most strategy games are, is that like you're taking a, you know, a soft thing like, yeah, some people probably have a bias against this other sort of person. And you're saying this is actually how that thing works with a specific number that makes their percent of getting by in the world like this much harder. So it's it's reifying ideas that like, yeah, this probably exists and we don't necessarily know exactly how it manifests, but we do know that there are a whole bunch of like systemic things that will occur later down the line. And it's like now with a game, we know exactly how this manifests at every level. And we can see like, here's the point where, you know, uh, this Argonian goes into a bank and applies for a loan and the wood elf there says no because of that negative five modifier. Um, and, you know, in Crusader Kings, that would be a religious modifier in, uh, you know, in a civilization that would be uh, someone from this empire modifier, that that kind of thing. But once you decide that's in the game, then it has to be in the game as well, it doesn't have to be. You could have it be entirely cosmetic. Um, but once you say this thing is here, when you colonize this place in Europa Universalis 4, uh, it'll turn into slaves at some point. Uh, now you're actually like saying this thing is real and you have to you have to make some sort of strategy game decision about what that actual reality means when uh, it's not necessarily an actual reality in that way. Well, and here's where, uh, you know, you, you have extra potential for a game to get really muddled or really pass along some like uh, toxic ideas is you know, that, that phrase you used just there. Like it's a strategy game decision, right? I almost I almost see the coach's press conference after the strategy game session is <laughs> over. Uh, so can you explain the uh, late game embrace of slavery and colonization? Well, it was a strategy game decision there, Rowan. Uh, you know, it's not for me to say whether it was moral. Uh, I was just I was just here to beat France. Like that's that that's kind of what these games can like when they sort of pop the cork on that, there's certainly a historical argument to be made that like doing a lot of heinous shit was in fact a very winning strategy for powerful historical empires that your game is like, and we're the powerful historical empire building simulator. Then that's <laughs> like, then that's going to be what your game ends up kind of 
seeming like it endorses because it helps you achieve certain like victory conditions or certain like goals. Fabs. That's the name <laughs> of that game. Uh, what, what is Fabs? Powerful historical empire building simulator. <laughs> That's, That's actually, we just coined it. Fantastic. <laughs> um, but but I think like ideally for me, like a lot of my relationship with strategy games is that they're interested. They're, they're mostly, mostly interesting as places to look at a model and see like a depiction of a world. I think when we talk about like paradox gamer brain, um, there are people who play these things and genuinely think because they don't have like a wide enough view or don't maybe have the like uh, historical or philosophical literacy on these issues they play games like this and they think all right that's yeah that's that i got my history lesson that's that's kind of how that worked that's that is the that's the history of the world right there and those are the dynamics here's the value of you you gotta colonize that place because the resources are so good um and what that, that completely like flattens like a lot of complexity and context and like who is this done for who is who is winning in this arrangement I uh, I remember when uh, Humankind uh, first came out, and there were a lot of a lot of complaints on the subreddit, um, which is why you should never look at a subreddit for a game. But there were a lot of complaints about how the war system worked because when you have essentially, it's been a little while since I played it, so this might not be completely accurate. But essentially, when you've waged as sufficient war as you have, sort of war support for and the enemy surrenders you can't keep waging war you can't just raise them entirely you can't take them over and just completely like dominate another empire you you can only conquer as much as you have earned and though people are very angry of just like but they've surrendered i i want to if they've surrendered why can't i just unilaterally take control and it's like because this is a war crime <laughs> You, well, you and not just do that. war crimes, <laughs> but that is such a perfect example too of there are so many people. Yes, yeah, so that expectation comes from like even later Civ games increasingly yeah. make it harder to just do that. But like, let's go back to Civ too, uh, which is like sort of where I come in as a strategy gamer in, in in my in my growth. But that is a game where it's like, well, I just take all their cities. Yes, and now I own their cities. Is one where you take all their tiles away. <laughs> Yeah, and now I get all the resources and all their production and all that stuff is mine. And maybe there's like a, you know, a lingering like discontent like thing. I just got to wait out the timer on it. But effectively, like those people disappear, right? They just become me and they become like my thing to play around with. And that's just never been true. <laughs> like, like the history, the history of like, even the most violent conquests, it is really, really hard to like completely wipe out a people. Um, there's very, there's very few like genocides that actually like pull that off. They suppress populations. They can scatter them, but actually completely erase them is really, really hard. And two, that model of like, and we are conquering territory, we're taking the resources and cities. Every time that happens, you're dealing with a with a conquered population. Those people are still there. They're still, you know, you might annihilate their political identity, but now you have created something new that wasn't there before. Um, and you, as the imperial holder of this territory, 
are no longer the same as you were before. But yeah, that expectation of like, no, it should just be like Civ. I should just be able to take all their stuff. And humankind is out there trying to be like, well, actually, like, you know, uh, everyone kind of persists through history. Like humanity tends to persist and take on new forms. It's an interesting idea. I don't know how well I feel that game always pulled it off. But but this notion that like, yeah, you might fight a brutal Bronze Age war with your neighbor that goes on for the entire era. And then you're still going to be neighbors in some form or another when you're launching satellites into space. That is, that's history. Um, but yeah, you, you see that expectation of like, no historical games should follow this template, which is they embrace this fantasy of conquest where it's like, you basically like just disappear population, rapture them out of existence and then get everything they built. Well, this is, this is one of those things where it's like, here's a perfect example of the intentionality of the strategy game design. So in civilization, when you conquer a city, you have like X turns of, um, rebellion or whatever and you have to have more troops there that's not an interesting part of the game the interesting part of the game is moving your little armies around civilization is like claims to be about all these things that go through history about economics and religion and so on and it models them at some level but the one that's actually the one you spend your time doing and is usually the most interesting is moving your little armies and counterinsurgency is just a matter of like standing there not moving your armies not doing something interesting um very few games actually have like an interesting counterinsurgency model unless they're just designed to be a counterinsurgency game uh it's usually just like sit and wait this shit out it's gonna suck uh the paradox games are quite good at making that shit suck but you're not actually really doing anything uh the choices you have made are all in the conquest they are not in the um in the you know, pacifying. And so I don't actually really blame those humankind players that much because yeah, like going and winning the war is one of the most satisfying things you can do in this game uh, because game designers haven't really cracked how to do the counterinsurgency yet. Uh, and like, <laughs> they're not the only ones counter- Rowan. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and that's part of the problem. I think I, I remember reading your review of I don't remember if it was Afghanistan or Vietnam, but one of those games where it was like, yeah, this this game is built on the idea that there's, uh, there's a counterinsurgency manual that works and now you can make a game off of it. Dude, it doesn't. But it they is did make so, a game. it is so funny when I go back and I think about Afghanistan 11. <laughs> and like what ended up happening in Afghanistan versus like what Afghanistan 11 is arguing like. And so then the, you know, once the U S like stands down, uh, the Afghan national army won't be quite as good, but they'll be pretty good. And y- your challenge is going to be able to like keep that territory, like locked down and Taliban free. And then like reality, like, you know, 10 years later is like, Nah, <laughs> the ANA's just gonna go. Um, the Taliban just sent text messages saying we own this. Marched five guys in, and the army was like, "Guess they own this." Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. Not sorry. I'm not. I'm not doing this anymore. Uh, I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah. uh, but like, I, I think this is where 
So I think the Parallax model contrasts interestingly here because, again, like, yes, you will find. I think a lot of games, it really is more about like, what is the audience taking like like any work? What's the audience taking into it with them? has way more to do with with what the work imparts than necessarily any sort of curriculum mm-hmm. in the work itself uh because i think there's a lot of people who do look at paradox games who like drink deeply of like triumphalist historical narrative um uh, and such and they and they see in that a reflection i think a lot of the paradox games though if you look at them uh aren't nearly as like lopsided in favor of like it is fun and cool to do terrible things like in the example of like okay well in european Solace, you can like demolish cultures you can erase them from the map that is going to be the project of your entire empire for like decades. If you do that, it's like, okay, well in, you know, because you stopped doing all these other things uh, and stopped like developing a bunch of different directions, you were able to just continue dumping resources into solving this problem of these people existing. Um, and you think about it, like that's like a pretty fair depiction of, of like, yeah, like, corrupt totalitarian societies or, or or genocidal regimes do tend to be like profoundly warped by the historical legacy and the infrastructure and frameworks they built to support this kind of like exploitation and suppression. And that doesn't go away. If you're a dumbass, you play the paradox game and you're like, cool, I can, I can do genocide. Uh, but like, it's not like the game is, necessary like the game isn't like endorsing that it's just a it's it's a line of play uh however i think and i think this is some of what like some of the people you were interviewing were getting at uh ruth which is like there does come a question i think this maybe came more with uh frostpunk in particular um of the idea of like if you create a rule set that favors immorality um, or, or favors a line of play, you're also sort of tacitly endorsing some, some idea uh, that, that exists in the game. Uh, and it sort of seems like in Frostpunk, like Frostpunk lets you go in a couple different directions. You know, you can be authoritarian, you can be the, the two extremes, you can be a fascist or a churchy, uh, but <laughs> But like their their conclusion was that they kind of that they kind of didn't want it to be a thing where there was a clear like, yes. And by the way, this is the right way to deal with these challenges. They didn't want to create a scenario where like mechanically here was the optimal path uh, and it is either like, you know, virtuous or evil. Yeah, they were really clear about sort of wanting kind of for each individual choice to be kind of uh, weighty and for that to kind of not be any sort of easy player heuristics of sort of, oh, the, the morally questionable choice will always be cheaper in resources or the, the morally questionable choice will always have nasty outcomes because there are kind of some games where you have kind of a more linear playthrough where once you play them once, you 
and you know what the outcomes are, you can go, aha, well, I know what to do next time. But you, like, you can kind of replay Frostpunk and even when you know what's going to happen, it doesn't necessarily make any kind of in-the-moment decision. Unless you're playing it really, really well and you've kind of got your like day-to-day kind of almost to the within like four-hour chunks periods of gameplay down, you're still kind of going to get snared by like, oh, I didn't pay attention to my wood production and now I'm... Mm-hmm in a snare and I've got to make a rubbish compromise and it sucks. So it it is still like it, that particular kind of uh, pattern of having to make kind of unpleasant compromises is a thing they only really do in the first campaign. The other campaigns don't pull the same trick. Um, the first campaign is kind of about making moral compromises specifically, which is. Um, yeah. And I, I've never been like, I, I like that they don't. I like that they don't mandate that you go to any of the extremes. I think uh, Rowan was it you or was it uh, John Balding who like actually never committed to either the uh, authoritarian police state or the uh, religious path. I I um, actually get stressed out playing Frostpunk and never got very far. And I'm not sure that it's stressed out like these are bad choices. It's that the the ambiguity is so well programmed in that I get like immense decision fatigue. And yeah. it's like, okay, I this is this is something I need full concentration for, and I'm not gonna ever have full concentration for anything again. Um so, uh, I think I think John legitimately never opened up those two trees that go off into like the police state or like churchy direction. He was just like, actually, I hate both of these. So I'm going to we're going to be a society of utilitarian pragmatists. Um and that worked too. Uh, but the, the, the thing that I, that I do kind of appreciate is that, um, so Frostbox is very clear that Frostpunk for better and and for worse I think has Bioshock morality if I come down to it as it it has a Bioshock idea of morality uh, in the way it depicts it because either route you go has a little bit of good but if you go too far mm, that's bad you know what I mean like (laughs) people love neighborhood watch but like you keep going down that tree it's like and then we shoot union organizers in the streets and you're like hmm i don't know about that like you go on the faith route it's like people love going to church and congregating with their co-religionists yeah yeah cool and here come the public shamings in the town square and i'm like hmm, i don't know about that one uh but in the end like they they take different vectors in terms of their buffs and debuffs but they both kind of arrive at a similar place of like uh you are neither you're actually like neither particularly more or less powerful uh in terms of your ability to meet uh you know the the dilemma facing you than you were before um and it reminds me a bit of like bioshock one is the like, do you want to eat the little sister? It's just like eat that little slug. But if you don't do it, obviously, you get the same resources delivered to you in a teddy bear later. Uh, and so like the the way it sort of comes out is like, great, you didn't do the horrible thing. And the 
choice before you was you want to do the horrible thing to gain a little bit like more resources but then the game kind of hedges and says well we'll give you the resources anyway because like look this game kind of runs on a power curve like you need to be on it so here get those get those uh get those powers but i think that is like that for me is kind of where Frostpunk ends up which is that i think it's a it's a really well depicted game. It's uh, like I, I, I love like the, the feel of a Frostpunk campaign, but I've always felt like its approach is always to be like these moral dilemmas exist. There are like good and bad ways you can organize the society. And then to avoid sit, like saying one thing or the other, they kind of have all those choices come out in the wash. Um, and I don't necessarily like, know that that's a that's a that's a bad approach um but my my feeling even 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 like sort of reading these comments in that piece is that uh to a degree frostpunk is a game that like wants to set up the dilemma and let the player resolve it internally for like what your values are what you want your playthrough to say game doesn't necessarily want to render a verdict which might be smart given some of the material it's playing with but i don't know i'm, I'm, I'm curious what what y'all think this is a thing that is another problem with strategy games is that because well perhaps opportunity but also problem uh is that because we're dealing with a systemic thing that you can play basically better or worse as ruth was talking about if you like are really good at Frostpunk and know what's coming, you can basically avoid having these choices being made out of desperation. And the the game is intended to be made out of desperation. You're like, oh shit, I got to use this child labor. I just don't have enough resources right now and we got to survive or, you know, things like that. Um, So once you start learning how to play it really well, the choices become a completely different vector and as a strategy game where these things are coming out as uh, um, what is the word emergent these these things are coming out emergent like you start getting the choices in Frostpunk when your characters start getting sick or whatever Uh, and then it's like well they get sick because they're cold if you send them to go do cold things or you aren't heating enough then yeah they'll get sick more and now you're making the choices about the sick people and if you just never get them cold then you can put off that choice for as long as you can because it's also a game about succeeding at the game itself it's not like bioshock Mm -hmm. where you're following this totally linear path although frostpunk is probably more linear than most strategy games but it's still fairly emergent so then i think about a crusader kings where the best way to play it is to kill off all of your children except for the best one (laughs) this is this is by far the best way to play and you know this is this is what the ottomans did at some time is that when they picked an heir everyone else who was the previous ruler's kid they just go strangle them uh that all the kids you know lived in their lived in their little palace in the harem with their mothers and when the time came one of them was chosen and the others were disposed of and like yeah that's a really efficient way to run an empire without someone coming along and saying no actually this is mine but uh the morality is uh more than slightly questionable 
So now you get in this case where, yeah, the best way to play a game might be completely terrible. Like I think it was Civ 2 where if you had a large empire, you pretty much had to go communism. And this is this is a game that's built on the idea of, you know, uh, late American empire's perception of communism. You're not you're not picking up some utopian state. We're talking about uh, Maoist China or Soviet Russia as uh, imperfect forms of communism, to put it diplomatically. Um, But yeah, like the systems in the game said this is the only way to handle it. Or even a Civ five uh, at the start of that game, you decide how you are going to beat that game pretty much. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to predict, take tradition or I'm going to take imperialism or I'm going to take, I don't remember the other one, but like, it's basically, do you want more than four cities or not? And then you have to choose which ethical path or which societal cultural path that has ethics attached to it. That is the functional decision of like democracy or communism or fascism from civilization too. which one of those. And it's very much a systemic. This one is better for the type of game that you want to play. Um, And this this also creates problems and it helps create that paradox brain where someone is like, yeah, we have to ethnically cleanse all the people here in order to get uh, achievement X. Therefore, that is the historically right thing to do. And yeah, the, the this can be used against the player in a really well-designed game. And I would say that Frostpunk does do that fairly well, at least the first couple times. But it's also a thing that ends up pushing players down certain paths or players decide that there must be a path and they apply their existing biases to say, well, fascism must be more efficient. Therefore I'm going to write a guide on the internet about how fascism is most efficient. And then everyone's going to believe this. This is not a thing that happens as much anymore since the days of game facts, but it used to be, it used to be a thing where the first person to write something about what the best way to play a game was would actually like have that be enshrined in fact forever, even if it wasn't true. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Frostpunk is interesting with the with the with the faith on order trees in that it does sort of exploit uh, the strategy game brain in because that's a little kind of timer in how often you can pass laws and i think it's something like every 24 hours um although i think actually the time it changes the more laws you've passed um so there is a tendency to be like i can pass a law and therefore i should pass a law because every time i pass a law it changes how happy my populace are i can make them more or less you know discontented more or less hopeful but actually you're just kind of uh a lot of the time the laws are sticking plasters like Sometimes they do pop up on kind of the emer- the emergent events of sort of you know people are cold, you should mm-hmm. you know you sh- you should pass a actually there aren't really any direct cold laws but you know people people are sick you should pass a, a hospital law you should open a, a healing house you should you should amputate the extremely sick people etc. But um, if you're just watching the timer and going ah I am this this is like a turn based game I can pass my laws I can do my research, I can optimize this, I can optimize that, then you do just tick your way up the tree. So you start off going, oh, we're having we're having our lovely little 
our church meetings and we have our little meals and that makes everyone more efficient and everyone's very happy. And now we have faith keepers and they make sure everyone's keeping in line. Mm-hmm. And now we're knocking down dissent. And if you are just ticking over strategy game of brain, then you're just watching, you know, dissent go down, hope go up. We love to watch the metrics go. But you actually, you don't, you do not need to touch the laws if, like, your dissent will be down and your hope will be up if people are warm and fed mm-hmm. and their children aren't. What, like, you can manage those metrics without passing laws, really, at all. This is the bit where I reveal that I really, really, like, Frostpunk really taps into a certain bit of my brain. And I think on the first campaign, before they released any of the DLC campaigns, I think I put, like, 40 hours into it or something horrific, which, like, the campaign is not very long. I just, I really dug into it. I wanted to know how it worked. So I find it very interesting. Um Oh, it, it, it is a, a really interesting campaign. Uh, and I think it does. When you say that there's that bit of like strategy game or brain, I think there is a bit of like. A lot of games do create kind of an in for a penny, in for a pound uh, logic to how you are making these decisions, too, where it's like, OK, so you got the 5% bonus to order and crushing descent. You know, it's better than 5% is (laughs) 30%. Now, mind you, now the descent's actually being bubbling up. So you're going to have to be crushing a lot more of it. But, you know, you want to mid-max, right? Like, play efficiently. Like, we're going to give you the tools to deal with the downside. You can build build your strategy accordingly. Uh, And so it is, like, a a lot of these games do create these, like, lines of play. Uh, and, and if you, you know, you also argue they invite these lines of play, which is again, sort of where the, the ethics and, and morality of this come into play. They, they invite this kind of thinking of like, well, you know, really like I'm being inefficient if I don't create the secret police and have them ferreting out, uh, dissent in, in my society. Um, I mean, this is, you know. Frostpunk is like sort of calling it out and cr- putting the meters on the screen and such, which is kind of like the advancement over. Um, I think, mean, like you know, we, we can't have this discussion to this point and not bring out Al- bring up Alpha Centauri. Uh, so everyone at home, take your drink. <laughs> but like Alpha Centauri is just like, yo, it's Civ in space, and you're like, cool, it's Civ in space. And then Alpha Centauri's like, secret projects are just wonders; they're great. And you're like, secret projects are just wonders and they're great to build. I love my secret projects. And then one of them is like, congratulations on the punishment sphere. You want to see someone get electrocuted by a sentient city you've built? And you're like, what? And it's like, (laughs) no more disorder in that city. And you're like, what? (laughs) And like the the flavor text gets more and more fucked up as it goes along too. Um, But like that was a really clever thing of like, Alpha Centauri actually doesn't have very much in terms of ways for you to express or interact with morality because the, the morality of the world is authored. Like the, the world goes in these directions, no matter what you do. Um, all the, the, the trick it's playing is that you're just playing a, in some ways a reskin of Civ with some cool mechanics, but in the background, it's like, Oh, you're aware that the systems you interact with don't tell you very much about the world that's behind it 
and the world is horrible. That's what's actually like underneath all these these systems, which is I think maybe one of the one things that makes makes that trick so effective. And I think this is something a lot of strategy games, I, I think, generally don't have much interest in this. You can feel free, free to disagree, but like they will position you as a very high up observer of events, or maybe even explicitly like as some sort of like immortal elite, like, you know, ruling over society. Um, and so what they don't very often do uh, in, in part because, you know, that's just not the scale they're operating at. That's not the story they're telling, but like, it's very easy to play these things. And identify with the interests of like the state or the ruler or something that you're that you're embodied as and you don't necessarily connect what's happening in the world to like well, what's it like to live in this world what is it like to live under me as like ruler of this city um and i think this is like th- this is one of the like it's it's i think it's one of the tensions in the space uh because it is it is so easy to create games that like sort of have this one-to-one you will identify with the cause of like imperialism or conquest and the thing it won't remind you is that like you know that means like a million people who are basically just like you are gonna get marched off to get slaughtered like that doesn't you know what i mean like you're the person who's like yeah and i needed to march a million people off to get slaughtered because number go up that's what i'm here to do i gotta push there's too much border gore map get pretty um yeah this is this is like my big problem with stellaris now that it actually is a real game um but like this is a game that it invites dozens of horrific science fiction conceits and then never actually teases out what's horrific about them it just is like here you can use slaves and you can build a slave empire and you know just you have you have your master race and they are taking over everything and this has like certain advantages and disadvantages uh you know you have to deal with a lot more discontent uh you don't get the benefits the full benefits of these other races existing within your empire and being integrated whatever but this is still a thing that you can do um and, and we will it's put a number a on it Yes. And it's only a thing that exists as a number. It's not a thing that exists as holy shit, this has all gone wrong. I hate everything that my empire has become. It's, you know, negative 40 to happiness. Um, And the the big example that I, I give is that you can get xenomorphs in this game. You can, you know, build the dudes from aliens and have them be part of your army and they exist as a number there. This is, this is probably a better combat unit, but much more expensive than your other combat units. And uh, I think I've had two people tell me that when you actually deploy them, they destroy, they destroy uh, planets that you conquer more than other units do. And that's it. It's just a number. It's like you have unleashed one of the most horrifying genetic bioweapon monsters in, you know, the history of science fiction. 
and negative thirty five to population growth for uh, yeah. five years. Yeah, and like, I want, I want Stellaris to turn into Warhammer, basically. I want it to like slowly become a descent into sheer science fiction horror as you like try to increase your power by doing these things. And they don't want to make that game. They want to make a pure science fiction, Star Trek, Star Wars. Uh, and I just don't think that it aligns the text of the game with the subtext of the game. Um, Alpha Centauri was better at that because it was so well written. Uh, and that's a really interesting way to go about it in a strategy game because uh, strategy games aren't usually built on the writing like that. But Alpha Centauri is like, yeah, you built a neat thing. Also, you lost your soul when you built it. And it's like, oh shit, what does that mean? But don't Did worry, save everybody on this planet lost their soul. Yes, <laughs> it's just which parts of it were they willing to lose? Uh, yeah, I think and it helps that like the you know that's an authored game where it's had, it's got this cast of characters. Stellaris has to it's this this attempt to be like, well, it could all be numbers. You create any race you want, any story, and the numbers will somehow like bear it aloft uh, as as narrative. Uh, but yeah, it does. It, but it does also turn out to be one like doing horrible things that's just a number there's there's the cost you're paying uh it's your tax for being evil uh but then oftentimes like the effort to push back against that is also like to fully embody lib brain uh like distortions too where it's like you know oil companies with diverse boardrooms are 50% more efficient than oil companies run predominantly by white men or something like that uh where it's like good i guess like that's (laughs) sure that's an argument for diversity but you end up in these things of like okay so how do we incentivize how do we incentivize not exterminating the other how do we incentivize like building a just and humane society uh well it'll pay off in these ways it's going to be more efficient in a different way uh than repression i think that's something that like games in the space really struggle against which is like um to be fair it's a it, it, it's part of the crisis of liberalism as well which is that this you end up making these arguments from a place of efficiency what do these modifiers do to the numbers uh that govern the system and therefore that's going to tell us what we should do it's sort of this technocratic like view of 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 how the world works uh because strategy games are often built from nothing but numbers you do end up with these scenarios where it's like okay so the reason you don't want to wipe out and subjugate alien races is not because like that's evil 40k shit it is because you get bonuses for tending a beautiful garden of diversity uh in in your in your empire and the the gap there is like well now you're just like you you create a number to discourage awful behavior and like reward nice behavior but you've actually sort of sidestepped the thing of like well the reason you shouldn't do this is also just because like you know it is evil um but that's not really the language strategy game speak yeah yeah this is this is one of the things that i saw in ruth's article is that like there were two big approaches to how the morality could work uh there was the the one from the 
uh, Space Warlord, et cetera, et cetera. I, I haven't played it, so I, I don't even know where to start with the name other than Space. I do know where to start with the name. Uh, I don't know where to continue with it, uh, which was like, we want to make the player feel horror at some point in the game. And it's not going to be a specific thing. It's when the player like has this realization that they have turned into a horrible person in the game world and perhaps in the real world. Uh, or Frostpunk, which is everything has a number. And we want to balance it so that the numbers are, you know, there isn't a right way and a wrong way, which something like a Stellaris or a, a, a Civ or the like might have. but there is still a number attached to everything and you have benefits and uh, negatives from making whatever decision you're making. And like both of these feel viable to me, right? If you're out there in Crusader Kings murdering children, you might say this is the most helpful thing for me to do. And I've just totally detached the part of my brain that says this is murdering children. But I know enough to make a joke about how I'm murdering children like this is this is still a little skeezy. Uh, or you have something like, you know, Frostpunk, where people are coming to you being like, how dare you make my children work in the snow? They should be learning. Uh, and like really aside that morality and say, like, what's going on here and yeah like when you go too far down that path like i think stellaris does uh then it's easy to just compartmentalize everything uh or if there's no pushback at all uh then the player might just you know blast on through like you know something like a rim world i think allows for this a little too easily perhaps um and yeah, the, I I don't think this is a tension that has a specific answer. Like part of me is more pulled to the the don't give them uh, don't give them the numbers. Just have them have the horror of realization that they've become a terrible person. But what if the person that you're dealing with is not <laughs> doesn't have that ability or uh, is just delighted to ignore any sort of ethical consequences to what what number is going up? I mean, Space Warlord, I mean, Space Warlords quite explicitly does have numbers. And it's interesting because it has, um, uh, you can, you can do good things in the game. You have, um, you have little clients that you sell organs to, you, you buy organs off an organ barge and, um, you sell them to the people commissioning them and they'll be like, I want to buy an eyeball because I want to string it between two walls and use it as a tripwire or someone will be like i'm a surgeon and i need to buy some livers to put in people and the people who want to buy eyeballs for tripwires or because they want to eat them or because they you know for grotesque or funny or awful reasons those people will pay so much they will give you so much money for your organs and the people who come and be like, please, I, I, I need a brain for a, a brain surgery. I have three days or this person will die. And they will give you like three money. And it's <laughs> like, ah, oh, I will make a horrible loss if I sell this brain to this person. But also they need it. But also my stonks. <laughs> but like, 
And so like, that's the moment where you're like, oh no, this is, this is why I'm being a horrible person because I'm deliberating. But it's like the, so the, the numbers are super there. You're like, this brain is worth 700 money. This terrible person will give me 900 money if I give it to them to plant in a robot that wants to kill people with lasers. And this person will give me three money to save someone's life with. Wait, which one of these is the bad one? <laughs> the one that makes my stocks go down. Right. <laughs> Obviously. Well, this, is, this is an advantage of strategy games is that... So I've been watching uh, the Star Wars Bad Batch cartoon, which has a fairly fairly normal premise of like some people are off uh, in a situation where they're kind of outside the law and they're being given jobs where they have an ethical choice to hand over stuff that will allow, you know, people to fight the empire or they can keep it and make money for themselves and have an easier time. Mandalorian is also built on this premise pretty well. Uh, it's, it's extremely common in, all kinds of science fiction bullshit. Uh, and it's a TV show. So you know that even if they're just constantly doing the right thing and giving away their free money, they're going to do just fine. They're going, the plot will need them to move forward. They're not going to just mm -hmm. suddenly be shut down, run out of gas in between, uh, in between two, two planets and die horribly as the oxygen slowly runs out. Um, they're always going to have that plot armor. Whereas in a strategy game, if I you sell can my fail. brains at a loss, I'm not going to have any money to buy more brains with. Right. You you can fail. You can go out of business. You can die. Uh, you can decide to set up your pleasant frost punk utopia, which never makes any laws that might hurt anybody and see how well that goes. Um, and maybe you can actually swing it if you're good enough. Maybe you can't. Maybe the game would make that impossible. But uh, yeah, failure is an option, and that makes strategy games a lot more interesting for examining these spaces, I think. One example I wanted to touch on uh, from Ruth's article that caught my eye, though, was uh, Terry Nill kind of has this approach of like, OK, you can't you can't do it all. Like there, there, there's there's kind of this approach of like there are caps put on the player's limitless appetite for fucking with the world and remaking it in exactly the way they want. Um, and I think this is one of the I think this gets at something. Terran Terran is a, a, an odd sort of builder game in, in a lot of ways. It's very much a subversive builder, but. I think it gets to something um, and it's fitting that's in the builder space. Cause if you talk about like a scenario where in fact the people like, you know, things are maximally constrained uh, when it, when it comes to like designing cities or modifying them and such. Uh, but, the, but this notion that like you create in the game things that cap the player's ability to, min max or just completely reshape the world in like in the goal of seeking one particular outcome that the that there is a value to wildness and balance in this game that like will resist the player's attempts to break it and won't give you the option of like expanding just oh i've created problems in this space i will just annex more territory 
so that I can solve them and achieve that balance. The game is telling me I got to make. So I will just create the balance somewhere else in this place that I don't care about. uh, And that'll be fine. I thought it was a really interesting, interesting approach as well, which is very much like, you know, kind of tying the player's hands past a point, um, which is something I'm kind of always in favor of. Have you, uh, have you played the demo of it at all? Cause it's, just before no, so, I say stuff. Oh, um, yeah. no, because it's interesting. It's um, it's part of the uh, itch bundle for racial justice, I believe. If you ever had that, um, it's very interesting to play because there is uh, one of the mechanics is a controlled burn mechanic, and so the way that you play the game is that you are, um essentially just kind of rehabilitating bits of land. Um, so we're kind of with a, a sufficient amount of kind of different types of terrain. Um, but one of the things you, you do is you kind of uh, plant a certain amount of flowers. And then you have a control burn mechanic and you have to burn one of the flower patches or more than one of the flower patches to create uh, the correct kind of soil to build trees on top of and when that kind of came up for the first time i just kind of sat there for a bit and was like but i just planted all these flowers i can't burn them that's i i just put these down that's it it feels really counterintuitive yeah and it it's very interesting that kind of when i was um kind of talking to uh oh when i said questions up to sam alfred he was talking about kind of not being able to make the game that Terranil is supposed to be with the tools that are conventional to the genre, because they are the kind of the design conventions and the mechanics are so tilted towards this kind of endless expansion and kind of Moorishness and that like as he said, that kind of cycle towards kind of endless resources that players are used to in the genre. And so kind of the control burn is something that comes from sort of actual real mm-hmm. life, but it's not a thing that is kind of in games, aside from, you know, you might have like a little kind of, I will click on this one square and un- as sort of an undo button, but not just sort of, I will set fire to this field of flowers and it will become tillable soil for me to plant something else and it's just it i like i say this in a positive way but it feels absolutely counterintuitive in the moment to just be like oh no i can't do that it is just it feels like a step backwards it it really took me a minute to be like this is the thing the game is asking me to do and it is not how i know how to play a builder game it's very interesting yeah i i think and i think you easily imagine that extended out into other genres but i i do think like you know there, there probably is a really material consideration here for a lot of people making these games which is like the audience is self-selected after a point you know what i mean like you're there and you're like willing to roll with that but like i think a lot of developers are keenly aware that the people who are like one, I just do not get why I can't like 
completely exterminate my enemies and humankind. Like, I don't understand, like, why this is an issue. Uh, and two, like, I also don't understand how this game works. Like, because this is so weird to me that you're not allowed, like, that there people making games in the space, I think, like, are also reckoning with the fact that, like, a lot of genre conventions were set, maybe unintentionally, ages ago. But that is the, that is the, uh lens through which everyone approaching these games now tends to tends to come at them and so if you're going to break from it uh you are going to make it a less intuitive harder to grasp game in some ways and that's even setting aside whether or not your audience even wants that kind of pushback uh because so much of this is about like you know kind of gratifying uh whatever it is you want to do yeah, I think the the endless push towards convenience is like always part of games. Like we're we're constantly trying to make well the games industry, uh maybe should not say we so much, uh is constantly trying to make it so that players will complain less about their games. And like the Space Warlord Organ Trading Simulator. I think like famously had uh, had a thread about that on Twitter that went viral about how players wanted to make it easier to get their stocks to go up by having like automated systems. And they were like, no, we do not want to make it easier for you to make the numbers go up. We want to actually have this be a thing that you have to deliberately click on, even if it's inconvenient. And I also think about regularly how like a higher up at PlayStation or something was like, we're going to make sure that every game we make has fast travel. I was like, what the fuck? Fast travel is a bane on the existence of RPGs, except for when I need it. Um, (laughs) But like, the, this push that everybody wants to make it so that people won't complain, therefore the game becomes more convenient, therefore it actually kind of, as as sort as Johnson might say, it optimizes the fun or it optimizes the setting out of the game. Uh, this is my my major issue with Crusader Kings 3 is that it makes expanding your empire so easy and so convenient to do that you just always win at it. Uh, I don't think difficulty should necessarily come from inconvenience, but it definitely did and worked really well in CK2. Uh, CK3 is better at interface and presentation and everything else, and it's like it's it's a superior game, but I also miss having to actually work to figure out which provinces I can you know take over. Um, and that's that's a major pushback that every genre has to work with. Like when you you talk about, you know, the FromSoft games and they basically exist to say, hey, you know, all that shit that you expect from your your AAA games. What if that wasn't there, but it was still awesome? How about that? You like this? Uh, and that's really good overall. But I think that we need more people who are able and willing to say, yeah, this is inconvenient, but I still like it. Um, and, you know, a game like Terra Nil, which specifically is sort of advertised as a city builder deconstruction, uh, people are going to go in and expect, yes, this is going to be weirder than I imagine. But uh, if you go into a city skylines that is built on 
restraining the player's abilities, I think you would get a lot of complaints. Um, and yeah, I was yeah. thinking of City Skylines when you were talking about this, Rob, because like the first big thing for a new player is realizing that they've kind of built out their one square and developing the next square that they can buy so that they can build more traffic lanes, basically. It's like, all right, I have... I've got my city down and I need to handle this traffic. And the only way to do that is to build more roads Uh, and city skylines. I don't think does a good job of calling attention to that being, you know, bad urban design because it has a set of systems that are built about that being the only kind of urban design. Yeah, the, um, that is, and and because there is so little that this game is also very explicitly like, removes most pushback for uh it's not like even if you design kind of a shitty city people will start avoiding your shitty city you know what i mean like it, people yeah. will what what you won't get are, <laughs> are like rich rich tech workers moving into your city that's the that's how the game punishes you is like you know there won't be any uh like deluxe coffee roasters and uh luxury studio apartments in your city if you don't play your cards right and you're like damn i need those but i need those uh you know five thousand a month uh studio apartments and high rises or else my city's not good yeah uh and, and so that's like that's as far as it goes but yeah like beyond that people will pretty much endure uh you know pretty high levels of inconvenience which is you know maybe maybe accurate uh up to a point but also does kind of leave it as a game where like it is just kind of a sandbox where you can keep laying out different forms of the same grid and you can keep putting in like different decorative elements but ultimately it's like this weird thing of wow this entire city is sort of built toward connecting via highways uh rich downtowns and uh like rich downtowns and business districts um and that's that that can be what that what that game turns into um i think i think the last thing i kind of want to get to uh you know for, for me at least though is I have I've sort of I, I, I waffle on this over over a period of years. I, I waffle on it over the course of a career. Uh, and Rowan, I think you might be coming from the same place on this, which is um, I think we've both seen phases and probably been part of phases where it's it, there's a very like prescriptive element to a lot of criticism. And like what we like the stories we want to see told the, the sort of connections that we want to see art or creative works uh, make between issues in the world. And if they make those and they're like mindfully done and thoughtful and like they say what, like, you know, what we, what we see is like, you know, good messages uh, then that's, then that's a pretty good way to go about it. And if they, if they don't do that, then, then that's a problem. Um, And I've become increasingly I've become increasingly detached from that uh in part because I just think there's a lot of things that don't necessarily like going back to my earlier point about so much of it is about the lens people bring into a work with them 
that is so much more important than what the work is going to say. Um, I tend to look at issues like this and I think, I think a few years ago I would have been hitting a topic like this and seeing like, and here's what I want more strategy games to, to draw connections between. Um, when, when I was uh, potentially hosting this, uh, yeah. I was going to, I was going to introduce it as uh, we were going to fix strategy games again. <laughs> Right. But, but the, it, it lent, it lent itself to this. Um, and now I, I, you know, for, for one thing, I think part of it is there's a lot of games that just can't bear that kind of scrutiny. Um, and they don't endorse and they don't confront. Uh, but the notion that a game is necessarily like, in the war game space, for instance, people who don't play war games are, are very quick to be like, okay, so this World War II game, that's just like Nazi apologia. Not really. Like it's like it's an abstracted depiction of a conflict. Now you can say there's a history of like whitewashing Nazi war crimes in wargaming, which is absolutely true. Uh, but at the same time, I don't I still don't think you've probably made a better war game if you've been like every time you click on a SS unit or something like a wiki article appears with their list of list of war crimes. Um, and I'm not even sure like you necessarily want some genres of games going in that direction because like it can seem trivializing. Um, but so when I look at a topic, when I look at a topic like this, right, when I look at sort of the state of strategy games increasingly i'm like i'm really wary of the way of what power fantasies games serve um i think you can draw you can glean a lot from like where a game is situating players and what it wants to encourage them to achieve um but i'm a bit less convinced that for better or worse, a game can teach very much, uh, as opposed to just spark curiosity. And I think that's that's the that's the other part of this is I think a few years ago I would have been more convinced that like games were obliged to teach the correct lessons. I think no matter how explicit you get, there's gonna be motherfuckers who approach these games who are going to be like, you know. I love ethno-nationalism and I'm going to make sure that this game reflects my, my love of ethno-nationalism and that, and I don't think short of not making certain types of games, I'm not sure you're going to be able to stop that person from like feeding that fantasy through like certain types of strategy games. But I think what you can do is you create a game that leaves more space for questions and does a better job of highlighting some of the trade-offs or costs that maybe fall beneath the level of concern uh, that the mechanical systems uh, depict in a game. Uh, that's, that's at least where, where I'm increasingly like ending up on this is just like, I like for me, my history of strategy games is that I've learned an awful lot not directly from strategy games, but from the way they've sort of sparked interest in other topics and like expanding my lens. Um, but in terms of like 
what has a strategy game ever taught me for good or ill? Mostly wrong shit. <laughs> Mostly <laughs> wrong shit. And so, like, I, the, the the best the best goal is like to leave space for questions and like uh, further follow up. But I'm increasingly wary of their ability to like draw prescriptive, conc- like draw clear and prescriptive solutions. Yeah, I, there are a few different directions that I kind of want to go there. Uh, one of the big ones is that, and uh, hopefully Ruth can talk about this a bit uh, after I go, is that it was really interesting that they wrote this article centered on city builders and simulations. Because, you know, my first instinct, and it seems like one of your first instincts was grand strategy. Um. And I think that part of the reason that's really interesting is that these are games that are about making number go up without a direct enemy. Like you don't have, Mm -hmm. you know, a one V one war going on where you have to overwhelm that, that rival. Um, You have pushback from the game with its systems And what does that pushback look like? Where does it come from? What decisions do you have to make in something like a Frostpunk is completely different from a Paradox game, Uh, even if it can manifest in some similar ways of like trying to make these numbers change. But uh, you're not having the Russians invade in Frostpunk unless that's something that happens much later that I haven't I haven't seen. Uh, It's Frostpunk too. Yeah, you're you're dealing with uh, the consequences of your actions are making things more difficult or the inevitable, the inevitable results of growth become your next challenges. And I think that's I don't know, that's a really fruitful way to get into uh, some of these complex things, because um, the emergent narratives that come out of it. I think are going to be uh, more nuanced because it's like the good thing you did is also bad. And here's why, and here's why it's difficult to make these decisions as a leader or, or whatever. Um, The other thing is that like, yeah, to, to go back to your main point, I think the, my time as a TV critic is very instructive here because uh, you know, I was, I was very, focused on game of thrones as as someone who had actually read the books before was an expert on like everything that game of thrones was supposed to be about you know dark fantasy fantasy books from the 90s deconstructions serialization uh it all added up to you know rowan is is one of the game of thrones people i'm I'm not saying i was a fan although i certainly liked many elements of it but one of the big discussions that would constantly come up with game of thrones is people would be like oh this show's about you know children getting thrown out of windows what a horrible ethical show what is wrong with our society that this is the most popular thing and i started developing the the game of thrones is good for society thesis uh not because i actually think there's anything in game of thrones that like you can actually trace to people becoming better better persons from having watched game of thrones but because there isn't a way to argue that it isn't 
like you can say this makes me uncomfortable, that doesn't mean it's bad for society. Maybe that's good for society. Maybe it's really good that you are made uncomfortable by dealing with this dark fantasy world where bad shit happens to good people all the goddamn time. I don't know. You don't know. There's no evidence of this. Um, and the other the other big hobby horse I have that's, you know, the, the mirror of this is Star Trek, which uh, I kind of famously disdain the idea that Star Trek is good for the world because Star Trek depicts a utopia where everyone has really good meetings all the time. Uh, that doesn't actually make the world a better place to me. Uh, and you can see, you know, the rough equivalent of people with strategy game brain. Maybe the Venn diagram is a circle here, but people who watch Star Trek for the ethno-nationalism, people who watch Star Trek for the technocratic meritocracy, and people who are like, yes, I am a horrible, rich asshole. I build all kinds of things to oppress people. All I want to do is make more money, and Star Trek is my favorite TV show. Well, why is that? Is that because they're getting Star Trek wrong or because they're getting Star Trek right or because Star Trek is completely irrelevant? Um, and so to go into strategy games here, yeah, like when I started, I think I was, I thought I might have thought not necessarily with strategy games, but definitely with role playing games and adventure games and more linear games, I would have been like, yeah, we are we are learning something really useful about we ourselves. Get Victoria too us. right. We're gonna deal a blow to capitalism, baby. <laughs> it's over for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I didn't even mention the Victoria Two talk from uh Chris uh about Marxism. That was that was something. Uh that's that's like a whole other show. Um but uh yeah like we're not going to start the revolution with these strategy games. Um, and we, we have seen like the very best people pull Star Trek or the very worst people pull Star Treks with the games that we want to say are the very best. Like Crusader Kings 2, I had that realization that I was becoming a terrible person. Uh, there was a situation in one of my early games that I probably brought up like half a dozen times on this show before. But uh, I was playing a Russian duke. Uh, who became a king and then the Mongols invaded. I got overthrown like right before the Mongols were starting to hit my territory. And so I got kicked back to being a Duke again. And all I'm doing, even as the Mongols are slowly getting closer, all I'm doing is trying to get my throne back. I'm like, I will destroy every goddamn thing in this country that really needs to be at its defensive peak in like five years because uh, Genghis is on his way. Um, I'm going to destroy every goddamn thing to get my throne back because I want it. And I was like, oh, shit. I've become a horrible medieval lord who's only serving my short-sighted goals here. But, you know, that's me. I'm taking all of the history books that I have read, all of the Game of Thrones that I have watched, all of my personal feelings about what power is and what power is good for, and applying that to a thing that says, you know, power might not actually be good in this case, but what's another person likely to do in that case? I don't know. They, they're not going to learn that same lesson. Like any person is going to have a slightly different lesson, and someone with a completely different philosophy of power from me would probably say, you know, the problem here is that the Mongols are not white. And that's that's the thing that we're dealing with. Um, so, yeah, that's 
it's become an increasingly difficult thing for me to uh try to say, yeah, there's a right way to handle it. I can point out wrong ways to handle it. You know, Europa Universalis is for slavery, for slavery system, which just kind of says you colonize here and you've automatically got slaves. I think that's a really wrong way to handle that. Um, but rendering that as like historically predetermined is yeah, because because then, it, yeah, like that's a great example. I'm glad you brought that up. When you do these things and you present them as like these are just built in features of the system that are deterministic, like contemporaries didn't think so. Like, yeah. that's the other thing is like history could have gone other ways. Like you will find it's the it's the, uh, you know, person of their time argument uh, when you talk about like historical shitheads where it's like, well, they did and said a lot of things, but one must remember the time in which they did. And like in that time, you find people who like completely were 180 from that. But that like, that's, that's a good example of, of like you create a system where it's like kind of not even a moral choice. It's just kind of neutral. Like, well, yeah, you go here. That's everyone knows that's where the slaves were. Yeah. So if you don't colonize West Africa, that's the only way to avoid becoming a slaver in that game. And even still you have, the uh, triangle trade system that's pretty much automatically going to conceptually at least have slaves being imported if you happen to colonize the Americas, which is, I don't think there's ever a notice saying like here, your, your slaves have arrived. You don't have the 1619 project happening uh, in that game that this might've changed with patches. I, I know they've done slightly more. I think you can encourage development of your empire to become abolitionist uh with with some later expansions but yeah the 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 core of it was was not great but yeah it's it's a thing where like i don't think there's ever a right answer like we're 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 in frostpunk here uh, uh we're frostpunking frostpunk where wait wait ruth got there it. are there are benefits and there are detriments to the choices you've made yes ruth Sorry, I was just saying, I think there are there are better answers and, yes. and worse answers. Like, I think a thing that is, imp- I was going to say important to me, I think a thing that matters certainly is um, implementation. Like, I do agree that I, I don't think there is a game where you can kind of put down in the text of the game a sort of, uh, like you said, just kind of a little pop-up wiki of just sort of, and this is why historically this thing is bad. Like it will just, it will come across as didactic. The players who aren't interested aren't going to take anything away from that. And players who would be interested are still probably not going to take anything away from that. But I do think kind of in the cases of, um, kind of like I pulled up in the introduction of, kind of in Crusader Kings 3, you have that kind of weird kind of player-facing eugenics thing where mm-hmm. it's it's like it's not in character, like it's not in universe, it's not in character because there are no medieval lords who can look at another person and be like, I observe your genetic history and I know exactly how likely it is that you will pass on this trait to your children. That's player information because they want to play the breeding game. And like, that's bad... The fact that you have traits that are coded as good and bad and some of them are red and some of them are green and it's like, this is a good hereditary trait and this is a bad hereditary trait. And you want to play the game and breed some of those out. Like, it's it's not a great set of information. Well, 
to present the player. I don't trust anyone who actually like engages with that shit. Like this is this is like so completely horrifying to me. And so like at, at a certain level, some of this is about personal standards. But yeah, like this is like as soon as someone gets into, oh, I want to get the ideal, the ideal breeding on Crusader Kings, I'm like, um Yeah. I have a different conversation to go to. Yeah. So just like I th- I think I, I agree that you can't kind of put a, a kind of in, in the text of the game, the narrative of the game, just kind of be like, and this is what we want you to take away from it. But I do care about developers being intentional, kind of designers being intentional about what their game is communicating, which I don't think is necessarily the same as sort of the text of the game should say this or should not say this. But I do think that kind of every design layer of the game does say something. You know, yeah, I think it incentivizes think, certain kinds of play or, you know, communicates various things, you know, whether, we, you know, we, we want this bit to be fun. We want this bit to be difficult. We want this number to be useful. We think this bit is less important. This thing is a, a bit of information we're hiding because it's kind of more for gritty players. Kind of everything is all communicative. And I think what is important to me is kind of the intentionality of what actually is a game communicating? What is it modeling? Are these choices being made with thought? Are they thoughtful choices or are we just kind of replicating what previous games did? Mind- <laughs> it's, it's, well, ma- yeah. it's maybe bad faith to say mindlessly, but you know what I mean? Just kind of well, and, and to an extent, creating like, what's been done before. I think awareness the- is a key word here. Pardon? I think awareness is a key word here yeah. where it seems like the designers are aware that the, and they have made this choice and yeah then we can extrapolate from that go ahead Rob no I was gonna say like that that is a choice that they made to promote the style of play like they they like in terms of everything in CK3 is more convenient tending your little genetic bonsai is more convenient <sighs> And easier to read in CK3 than it was before. And part of that is that like they like developers often approach these things of like, we know, we know gamers love to do this. A lot of people have said like, it'd be cool if that'd be a better feature, it'd be a better implementation. So yeah, we did it. And what you've done is like, okay, now you've not only made the bloodline stuff easier to like tinker with but also you've made it more real um you created a world where like genetic determinism is actually pretty strong uh compared to like the real world like it's this is like eugenics got buffed for ck3 um and yeah that that is a choice now i i tend to think because because i do know people who, who do like play around with the stuff like there are people for whom that is part of the Sims ish nature of CK where it is like, yep, my entire, my entire game is going to be empires. They rise and fall, but like my weird Royal house and like the particular type of uh, people I'm trying to create out of it. That's, that's my main goal. Um, I'm not necessarily, I'm not like, too weirded out by it i it's never been a style of play that interests me very much because like 
I just don't have the attention span for it. And like, I'd like to paint the map instead. Um, but like it's, I, I do tend to see people engaging with that stuff. Um, in a pretty like lighthearted way, but it does also exist in the context of a game where like, Hey, we took, we took genetics and we made them easier to predict and easier for for you to manipulate. Um, because we isolated all the variables that the, like fundamentally that's, that's what, that's what they've did is like all these traits because they are like so salient in crusader Kings. Um, they're, they're much more isolated and identifiable than they would ever be in the real world. And, and certainly more than they would have been to a society that didn't know about genetics uh, back then. But like they, they, they sort of, they they do sort of make these concepts more real and more powerful um in a context where like they just weren't they didn't exist this way and it is true that like famously a lot of key historical moments do hinge on traits that existed within a royal bloodline or they like Things that people at the time didn't understand, but we now know were like heritable conditions or or heritable traits. But like they weren't that is not the understanding that existed in the time. Um, and so that that to me is the the other interesting part of this is like we do know like some of the issues around Henry the Eighth. But in but in the games, but in, but in the games world, it's like you know, if only we'd had like, <laughs> if only we'd had like a geneticist working fist in glove with the tutors, it all would have been different. Um, and that's and, and that is kind of a weird direction for for the game to go. Um, to say nothing of like the traits the game focuses on and the way it depicts them is very much like, okay, in this world, people just hate people with hair lips, hate them, yeah get away from me with that hair lip that's that is like that is what the game is put that is what the game is saying happens in the world and uh yeah that is like you are then making an absolute like declarative statement of much like the the racism negativity negative negative uh like modifier we just discussed at the top of the show a lot of like disabilities or um like physical conditions now in this world inherently carry this value and the game's rules, do they depict or do they enforce? That's, you know, that's a question that CK probably doesn't consider enough. Yeah. To what degree are we depicting something versus like, you know, enforcing it? Like you can be in the ruler creator and in order to keep Iron Man on, you have to spend fewer than uh, 400 points and you can pick a, a negative trait to like earn some points back. So if you want to have like a really intelligent person, you can pick a, a negative hereditary trait and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's gross. It's, I'm, I'm just pulling a lot of faces, which does not communicate verbally. Yeah. Just for the sake of everyone else who is not immediately Robin Rowan, I just I pulled so many faces in that moment. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, you can you have a really smart ruler, but you're gonna have some real bad scoliosis uh, running <laughs> running rampant in that family. It's it yeah. is it is a, a deeply uncomfortable set of choices, and I just I think that is. Yeah, it is kind of the reason why it was sort of the example I picked sort of in the introduction is like that is the thing that they chose to sort of put numbers on. And I'm I'm kind of critical of CK3 because I really like it. It's a it's a game I've spent a lot of time on and I enjoy it. But it is profoundly weird to play in some moments because of the things that they've chosen to put numbers on. You know, the way because some some things aren't Nope, I'm going to start that sentence again. CK3 has like a lot of everything as kind of modifiers. You have, uh, you know, you have this religion and people feel plus 10 about you. And within your culture and you are an adulterer, people feel this much about you. And you can end up with these absolute tooltip heavy, goes all the way down the page, list of opinion modifiers because of so many things about you. And it is profoundly weird that it will be, you know, you have a, a hunchback and people find you terrifying. It is just deeply unpleasant. Um, but I think it is kind of emblematic of how strategy games do just model things in numbers without being completely intentional about how they work. And then I think some of the people I spoke to were much more invested or at least were particularly invested in thinking about how they were abstracting the themes they chose to focus on in their games. And I think that thoughtfulness is interesting. Um, but it, yeah, go run. Um, this is one of the things where, you know, seeing the talks come out of GDC and especially Sora Johnson, who is an occasional guest on this show and, and someone who thinks deeply about all these systemic issues. Like one of the things I consistently talk about is, one of the biggest choices in strategy game history was uh, Civilization IV uh, on the diplomacy screen. At some point, there was like a bug, or no, they were trying, they were exposing the diplomatic, uh, they were making the like relationship modifiers for diplomacy public so that the QA testers could understand why they're their choices were being made. And when they decided, okay, we've gotten the data we want, and they tried to turn that off, the QA testers were like, no, we want to see those relationships. We want to see all those modifiers. We want to see the negative 20 for being Catholic. We want to see the, you know, shared border thing. We want to see all those. And like these transparent numbers became one of the biggest innovations in strategy games uh crusader kings 2 of course was like completely built on this idea that you know a humble person and an arrogant person aren't going to get along minus 20 uh and that's part of what made it great was that you could actually understand this web of relationships that your character you could like have your character die a new one would appear the web of relationships still made sense but now, you know, Sora Johnson goes to GDC and he makes a presentation about how he regrets the diplomacy system in Civilization Four because, and this is a slightly different angle. This is the like negotiation aspect where you give some and you take some, but it's definitely directly related uh, because it is a transparent set of numbers. But he regrets giving players a system that they can optimize because they'll optimize the fun out of the game. That as soon as they get you know, a new tech, they will immediately go try to sell it to every other, every other civilization. And that 
has weird knock-on effects. It's it's boring for the player to click that button 60 times every turn. Um, so yeah, he has regret for making this system, which in a different way, I think, proved incredibly fruitful. And this is just kind of an ebb and flow that you see with any kind of genre and any kind of art where the thing that is the really cool, great new idea is suddenly now, oh, we've kind of, we've exposed the limitations of how far that's going to go. Let's pull back. So now Old World is built on these diplomatic choices based on the relationships that exist and basically like how you feel about, you know, deciding that the Carthaginians are going to be your allies or not, depending on a marriage that happened two generations ago. Are, Are you fully committed to this? And it becomes about the player's emotions. You know, it's it's about the vibes and not the numbers. And this also has major advantages and probably major disadvantages that we'll start seeing in increasing ways as this time goes on. You know, this applies directly to ethical choices where, yeah, you if you told me a decade ago that there would be games that had like very strong ethical choices that had very specific numbers attached to them. I'd have said, this sounds like a really good idea. And now I absolutely see those limitations. And uh, yeah, I think Rob's Rob's bringing up of Alpha Centauri was very instructive because that game, I don't especially like Alpha Centauri as a game, but those quotes and that setting are just burned into my fucking skull. Uh, Like, the the mega capitalist, the mega religious quotes that like, yeah, I actually sympathize with this. This is horrible, but they make it make sense. The the philosophy here kind of like has has a pull to it. And it just feels so personally meaningful that the game is talking about the decisions that I have made or the decisions that I could make in a way that is personal personal and emotive or emotion inducing or the like uh and i think that is a major thing that strategy games could use is frostpunk does this well also when you make your law choice you immediately get people popping up being like oh i don't know this this might have some bad effects this kind of makes me feel bad uh yeah so so a terrible decision actually Having the game spit this back out at you, and this is a thing that, you know, in all forms of choice, I'm very interested in is less the effects of the choice itself and more how the game acknowledges that I have made the choice uh, is, is, I think, an important aspect of this. And that's where that awareness comes in, uh, that the game knows that this wasn't just like a random thing, but this is actually like a really huge ethical dilemma. I think with strategy games, you you spend so much time with them. You devote so much attention and so much of your mental energy that I think when you have kind of systems that are either intentionally kind of play with that kind of emotional effect or either kind of unintentionally do imply something kind of careless or harmful. Um, I think it, it can be kind of quite significant because you do, you have given it kind of so much of your kind of intention. It, 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 like it's, 
as opposed to something you're playing with sort of slightly less of your brain you've given yeah. it. <laughs> I, I, I was slightly going in circles with that sentence, but you knew what I meant. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of had a negative, uh, a negative example with RimWorld earlier, but like if you want to go full on organ harvesting slave trader in RimWorld, you have to like actively build out prisons and uh laboratories that will harvest these organs put them in their jars make sure they're refrigerated the amount of work that you have to do for something that is pretty lucrative you know you see the blood spatter across the laboratory you have to have a janitor come and clean it like this is this is the thing that is maybe a little bit too happy about allowing you to be a horrible person in it but it does require you to actually fully commit to being a horrible person and seeing as best as the game world allows that you have made this decision. Uh, and you know, that's important that that has that intentionality both from the game and from the player, I think. Um, this is a good conversation. I need to leave it here because you've been, maybe been able to tell uh, we've now entered the part of the evening where my dog is done with letting me podcast. I, I had like another two minute direction to go. But after that, I think I'm done. All right. Take it away. Uh, yeah. The last thing I wanted to mention is uh, we've talked about city builders and empire games, uh, but Tactics games, I think, are also a fruitful thing, especially system-based ones. Uh, Darkest Dungeon, for example, especially the new one has these possibilities, but the first one, like, choosing who lives or dies or who you're going to commit to uh, trying to save immediately as a character versus letting them go if they happen to go in that game. Like, you can form grudges and keep your characters, like... Yeah, if, you know, this plague doctor just like went complete paranoid asshole, I kind of want her to die. Uh, that's, I think, really interesting. But the one that the one that stands out to me when I think about ethical choices is XCOM 2 versus the XCOM 2 Long War, where in the Long War, resources are so, so scarce. And the way that you one of the best ways to get money is to sell alien bodies or do research on alien bodies. But most of the time in that game, you don't actually get to an end point where you've cleared the map and you just automatically get everything. Instead, you have to make a landing zone, carry all the alien bodies over to the landing zone and like call up. Your, your little rope so you can get in the get in the helicopter you also have to do this with your wounded and it gets this like hold no man left behind kind of ideal that really made me engage with that world so much more than like the core XCOM 2 because I'm forced to make these choices do I let this guy die do I go for the alien corpse do I want to uh, do I just get my surviving characters out as quickly as I can um, all these things add up to just a genuine feeling of uh, difficult decision making that is in many ways ethical uh, or it's I'm projecting ethics onto it. In some ways, it's just practical, but it's the limited resources combined with the inconvenience of having to drag these corpses across the map in order to survive and keep them. 
uh, really made for interesting ethical decisions to me. And uh, yeah, the the tactics game space is not at the same level as the city builder or the empire game that we've been talking about. But I think there are things going on there intentionally and unintentionally that are really interesting. Uh, Ruth, do you have response or? No, I, that, that was just kind of an affirmative nod. I, uh, am apparently not very good at remembering to verbally communicate. <laughs> no worries. Uh, all right. I think on that note, we will leave the discussion there for this week. Uh, this episode was produced by Liana Hafer. Three moves ahead is hosted on the Edel Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Uh, finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. Uh, now, Troy and I have been trying to record the March uh, movie podcast for about two weeks, but we keep having conflicting work trips. So I guess it's April or May is going to be double stacked. But I can promise you this. The next episode is about Night's Tale. Uh, so you have that going for you. Uh, check it all out on patreon.com slash 3MA. We'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, for Rowan, for Ruth, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.